Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. On New Year's Eve, my kids and I had a dance party with dear friends on Zoom. It was fun, but it wasn't the same feeling we would have had being all together in the same room, jumping, laughing, and moving to the music. Social media apps and conferencing technology have helped keep us connected over the last year. But how have professional dancers gotten through this pandemic? Today, where we live, we talk to them. Coming up, we'll also spend time talking about TikTok. How many of you have participated in TikTok's dance challenges? We definitely want to hear from you or your teens. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me first on Zoom is Margaret Fuhrer, a dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. Margaret, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I understand you've studied dance for, what, almost two decades. How are you dancing these days? <laughs> oh, I think most my dancing days are mostly behind me. The, the dancing that's happening in my world is, is sounds like the dancing that's happening in your world. I'm having dance parties with my kids in the living room. <laughs> um, but it's been interesting and wonderful to see how dance has become, in some ways, more visible during the pandemic even as dancers and dance companies are struggling. So before we talk about how it's become more visible, can you talk about just the impact that you have seen on the dance world in the pandemic? What did we see happening last spring and summer? Yeah, I think, you know, from talking to people in the dance world, a a line that I've heard a lot recently is that dance organizations were the first to shut down and they're going to be among the last to reopen. And partly that's unsurprising in the sense that dance by its nature usually requires, you know, bodies moving in close proximity. It's very pandemic unfriendly. But dance performances and dance training are also incredibly resource intensive. Um, They frequently require large, expensive, specialized spaces and specialized equipment, a lot of people doing a lot of work. And trying to return to those types of environments in a COVID safe way it's not impossible. We've seen it happen, you know, in professional organized sports, but it demands a lot of money that the vast majority of dance organizations just don't have. And, you know, dance has never been well-funded. The funding model for dance organizations is and has long been pretty much a mess. It was extremely tenuous, even for the best organized institutions out there. The pandemic is making clear just how much of a mess it is. Um, there's very little government support of dance. Most organizations are heavily reliant on individual donors or on philanthropic organizations, which means that financially their outlook is sort of perpetually unstable. And dancers outside of company models have always had very few resources available to them. And now they need support even more urgently. So. 
everybody is struggling, even the biggest organizations and the smaller companies and studios, which are the places where most of the dance in this country happens, are really hurting because they came into this with even fewer resources to fall back on. They don't have endowments, they don't have cash reserves. So it's incredibly hard. And I'm, I didn't mean to sound flip at the opening about, oh, it's been wonderful to see dance everywhere. It's been incredibly hard. Um, on a more positive note, of course, the pandemic has also revealed the profound depths of resilience and creativity in and around the dance community. That's always been true, but especially now we're really seeing it dancers and teachers are finding all kinds of innovative ways to continue their practice. There's been a digital dance boom and a film dance boom that is almost unbelievable how quickly that part of the dance world has expanded, especially considering how different dance created for a screen is from dance created for a stage. And I think there's this bigger picture, forward-looking sense of, okay, the pandemic has essentially burn the dance system as we know it to the ground but it clearly wasn't so great to begin with so how can we make it better as we rebuild mm. so we're going to be talking more about uh, reimagining the dance world coming up here on where we live i wanted to bring uh, a local dancer into our conversation uh, with margaret fuhr uh, brian sims jr is a dancer with the new england ballet theater in the greater hartford area brian welcome to the show Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Margaret mentioned that dance has become more visible in the pandemic, but I'm wondering in those early months uh, when you and your uh, dance colleagues, how did you adapt when you had to isolate and not be around each other, uh, practicing, performing, uh, doing the training? Um, it was definitely very difficult for all of us. I usually spent a lot of my time practicing at home, but it's a totally different experience when you have to do it at home and you really don't have the option to get out and practice in the studios and go into rehearsals. So it was a huge challenge on all of us. We had to find like the most creative ways to kind of stay active and finding all of these ways to perform and to stay fit and to just keep ourselves in our regular day-to-day -day routines, which is something you have to do as a dancer. It was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever really had to do. I have a budding ballerina in my household, and I was thinking uh, for adult dancers, finding the space to do your training, your practice, that can be challenging, Brian. Yes, definitely challenging. Um, when the pandemic first started, the apartment that I was living in was super tiny and I didn't have any space to really move around. I literally had to move into a bigger apartment um, in a different part of town just so that I could have like space to seriously dance and really feel like I was making progress at home. We're going to be talking a little bit more about some of the online projects that uh, dancers are doing uh, because they've had to isolate and can't be in the spaces they used to be in. Uh, you can join us if you have a dancer in your family, if you're a dancer, talking about uh, what it's like uh, in this pandemic, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brian, you had a really interesting uh, online project, uh, but I've got to ask, what drew you to dance? How long have you been doing this? I've been dancing since I was about 13. Um, that's a pretty late start to dance in general, but especially ballet. Um, 
I've always been heavily involved in the performing arts. My family has always been very supportive of the things that I was interested in. So I had always been dibbling and dabbling in musicals here and there locally. But the dance side of those musicals always really drew me in. And just the fact that you can practice and practice and practice at dance and never really reach your peak and there's always more to do it really drew me in so when i was about 12 i got very serious about dance and i started searching locally for like a serious training and what was that like uh, when you said you're looking for serious training give our listeners an idea when we, we talk to uh, professional dancers how much time in a day that you're spending uh, working on uh, performances and training well, when I was younger, it was something that was kind of considered extracurricular for me. So I was having to squeeze these things in after school. I knew a lot of kids that were kind of going to full-time performing arts schools, but I was having to squeeze these things in. In my spare time, basically, I finally got into a full-time performing arts school. And there, my day was basically dance from 1 p.m. to about 5 p.m. And that's just a bunch of hours of technique class basically and learning rep and choreography and that was what I did for a couple years I just worked really hard every day and sometimes I would go home and practice as hard as I could and only when I became an adult did I really understand kind of what was expected of me as a dancer so now my schedule and just the work I have to put in is totally different than what it was back then. Mm. Hard on the body Brian? Definitely. Um, and the toes, just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> uh, Margaret, you're still with us. Uh, when we think about this, uh, y this last year that we've all been dealing with, uh, talk about how when you want to become a professional dancer, how difficult it is to break in. And what does that mean uh, for dancers in this last year uh, who were looking to, to start their careers? Oh, my gosh, it's incredibly difficult to break in because First of all, the competition is incredibly fierce. There are thousands and thousands of dancers aspiring for very few professional jobs. And I mean, over the past year, the number of jobs available has only decreased. There are fewer company positions now just because of, of what's happened during the pandemic. Um, it's been a difficult time, and, and I might not be the best person to speak to this, but I, from what I've heard, it's also been a difficult, difficult time for dancers who were sort of on the brink of starting their professional careers this year, this past year, um, ballet company auditions are usually held in big communal spaces. Trying to do that over video, trying to do it digitally, it's really hard. It's, it's, it's really hard for, I think, on both sides of the equation. Um, so yeah, it's been, a, it's been a tough time all around in terms of starting a professional career on top of all the usual difficulties um, that young dancers face when they're trying to enter this extremely competitive industry. Brian, pick up on what Margaret is talking about. And when we think about uh, professional dancers, uh, is it a, a short uh, a career in terms of when you are reaching your peak and you don't want to miss uh, that momentum, especially when you think about the pandemic? Yes, I actually um, relate a lot to what Margaret just said. This is my first professional job here at the New England Ballet Theater. And I'm actually very lucky to have been able to kind of land this job. Um, it's basically in my hometown, so I didn't have to leave. And that was perfect for kind of the state that 
the world is in at the moment. But also, like she said, it's really hard to kind of start your professional career at a time like this and to even audition. Um, and I couldn't imagine, like, if I hadn't been given the opportunity to dance with NBT right now, I would basically be in the same boat as everybody else and really be struggling day to day to kind of keep motivated and to keep myself going. Um, this has been pretty great to be able to work during this time. So although I can't speak on everyone's behalf as far as it goes to starting a professional career at this very time, um, because I've been so lucky to be able to work, um, I can imagine how difficult it would be. Um, even when I feel like I have a little cold and I have to miss a day here, <laughs> it feels like the world is ending. So I can imagine like all those months that I had to go through, like I, I wouldn't want to go back to that. It's This is like the toughest time ever to be starting your professional career. You're hearing Brian Sims Jr. here on Where We Live. He's a company dancer with the New England Ballet Theater based in the greater Hartford area. Also with me, Margaret Fiora, dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit Newsletter and Podcast. Uh, uh, Margaret, when you said that uh, dance has become more visible, uh, tell us more about some of the ways that uh, professional dancers or even people just uh, you know, like stuck at home more are going on to social apps and connecting that way. Yeah, I mean, social apps in particular, I mean, there, there has been a huge boom in professionally produced digital dance, which I think some of it has been really successful. Some of it, I know choreographers are <laughs> chafing a little bit at the idea of, well, wait, now I'm a filmmaker too. It's been complicated in that sense. <laughs> but in terms of social media, I'm so biased. I love TikTok. I am very, <laughs> very aware that it is far from a perfect platform, that there are aspects of the way that it's run and the way people interact on it that are worrying. But I love professional dancers on TikTok. I love non-professional dancers dancing on TikTok. I love dance challenges. It's been this place, well, for dancers who dance professionally to sort of reconnect with the simple fun of dancing, the childish fun of dancing, kind of let it all go because it feels like a very low stakes outlet and a very high stakes time if you're a professional dancer. Um, but I also love just seeing more people at everywhere, all types of people. I mean, it started out as mostly young people, but I think now we're seeing a really broad range of people engaging with dance in a way that they might not have otherwise if this app hadn't facilitated that. Brian, how do you feel about TikTok? Yeah, my favorite thing about this kind of TikTok craze is that it helps me personally um, connect to a broader audience. I have people kind of commenting on my TikTok and Instagram posts that probably have never even seen a full ballet in their life. So it's pretty interesting to just see the rainbow of people that are able to see this content and that we're able to bring ballet to. Now, I, we, one of the reasons we invited you onto the show, Brian, you have this uh, beautiful online project that you produced uh, with other dancers around the country. Listeners can go to WMPR.org slash where we live uh, to see a video of this. Could you talk about this project, what prompted it, and how you did it? Um, the Dying Black Swans was a short virtual project that I worked on during the summer um, while I was actually quarantined in my house, basically. Um, it was inspired by a bunch of police brutality happenings and just very unfortunate um, situations in America. And 
I reached out to a bunch of Black artists that I felt like were also people like me, um, quarantined at home and just really looking for a way to kind of let a lot of things out that may have been building up over that time period. It was a really tough time for all of us, I'm pretty sure. Um, I had been working pretty adamantly on point work and just the dying swan variation, which is challenging but not the most difficult it's just a bunch of boring steps like you just kind of move back and forth and there's a lot of intricate arm work so it was something that was easy enough for me to try as a beginner on point so i wanted to be able to mix point work and just my black voice and the black voice of others and so that's basically where it started um i reached out to a bunch of black artists that I knew via social media um, and a bunch of them agreed to be a part of this project and it just kind of grew from there. And all of the dancers weren't ballet dancers, they were hip hop dancers and contemporary dancers and dancers in bigger bodies. It was a pretty um, diverse group of dancers and I was just really happy to see it received so well. Everyone worked really hard on that project and we just did a lot of talking about exactly what that project would mean and just what we were going for. Um, I talked a lot about just the image of a dying black swan with them and exactly what that meant to me um, in regards to what was going on in America at that specific time. And that's how dying black swans happened. And you posted that video three weeks after the death of George Floyd. What was the reaction when people started to see this in the dance community? Um, I got a lot of comments and messages just about how inspired um, that it kind of left people. And that made me really happy because that was really my intent from the very beginning. I just wanted people to see, you know, that we have voices and our lives are very important. And um, as artists, we have to find ways, as Black artists, we have to find ways to express ourselves through our art so that we're not only just touching more than one audience, we wanna be speaking about just more than one message. So we want diversity, but we also just wanna be safe in our world and we can't be happy dancers if we're not safe. So. When we think about uh, what our country, um, how it responded after the death of George Floyd, uh, when people watched this video to see the symbolism of the death of an innocent black person uh, in this collaborative, uh, what else did you want to communicate when we think about how dance, uh, the dance world is exclusive and how it can be more inclusive, Brian? Um. The dance world definitely hasn't been the most inclusive place. I think recently there have been very big efforts made towards making ballet more inclusive and dying black swans was a way for me to kind of share how I really felt about what was going on and how I really felt about ballet. And I just wanted to see more black bodies dancing ballet. Um, 
It was definitely a beautiful and somber to see this video again. Our listeners can go to WMPR.org slash where we live to see dying black swans. So what are your next projects, Brian? Again, you said you're lucky enough that you're working with New England Ballet Theater, but in terms of more online projects, more collaboratives, can you give us a peek? Um, right now, I'm working on a bunch of stuff, of course, with New England Ballet Theater. So please be looking out for that. We have a woman's show coming up, and we also have a storybook ballet coming up that's very exciting and family-friendly. So I would definitely encourage everybody to look out for that. I'm also working on a few virtual works with my virtual ballet company, Black Sheep Ballet. Um, you can follow us on Instagram and also working on the storybook ballet there. So there's a lot going on, but very excited to see what this year will bring. Before I take some calls, Margaret Fuhrer, I wanted you to, to respond to what Brian shared, especially how we've seen uh, get professional dancers, uh, dancers of color, uh, using this time to focus more on how to make the dance world more inclusive, to also use it as a protest tool. Yeah, I think, again, I might not be the best person to speak to this, but I think that dance can be a, an extremely powerful protest tool, the way that people connect with it emotionally, the way that it doesn't require language and therefore it is inherently universal. Um, I think, well, it's been incredible to hear so many powerful dancer voices, ta especially talking about racism in dance, because historically dancers have encouraged not to speak and this is especially true in ballet you're taught to be quiet you're taught to be obedient um you're taught to listen to, but not speaking is seen as almost a sign of respect to authority and so sometimes dancers feel self-conscious or feel hesitant to you to raise their voices and i think we've seen so much progress on that front during the pandemic i mean it's it's sad that it took a tragedy of this scale and the scope to make that happen. But it has been wonderful to see all of these dancers emerging to talk about this cause that is so important to them. I want to, again, I want to thank Brian Sims Jr. for joining us, a dancer with New England Ballet Theater. Brian, we thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast and a great opportunity. Uh, we've been focusing on how dance is changing, but also how people are connecting to dance during the pandemic. I want to take a quick call, Eric in Hamden. Eric, what's been your experience over the last year? Um, good morning. Uh, I'm, I really appreciate your show this morning because it's uh, ignited an interest in, in, in me personally uh, in, in uh, classical dance, ballet, um, that I didn't have before. So thank you for that. It, I, my wife and I are ballroom dancers, and uh, for the first part of the, the pandemic, the studio closed. Um, they had to. And, and uh, again, as things began to open up, they, um, the studio made efforts to they, um, they put these uh, air-cleaning UV machines around the room. They uh, limited uh, attendance to one person or one couple at a time with a one instructor in the room. Um, they, they clean everything down. But, but I have to say that the, the time when we weren't able to dance was, uh, was pretty grim. Um, mm -hmm. the, the ballroom dancing for us is, is a, it's a revelation. We're, we're very small time. 
very small time. <laughs> uh, we don't compete. We don't do anything but dance. And it's, it's great communication. It's a little exercise for both of us. It's, um, it, it's wonderful. What else can I say? That's all I wanted <laughs> to add. And one more thing. Um, I, in the gradations of ballet, is there a, a, a more classical sense, a more classical, um, um, you know, uh, uh, form of it to, to, to modern? And forgive my ignorance on this point, but if you could elucidate that just a little bit for me, that would be great. And I'll hang up now. <laughs> Thank you, Eric, for your call. I'm going to have to ask the dancers to answer your question. Margaret, can you help Eric uh, with his question? <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, yeah, there is a wide range within the ballet world of the, the types of dance that are happening, and that's in increasingly true. Um, even the most classical ballet companies, and most of the larger ballet companies are, define themselves as classical ballet companies, are doing a very wide range of work, which actually requires a lot of their dancers. If you are, even if you consider yourself a classical ballet dancer today, you are supposed to be well-versed in many different techniques that will allow you to perform more contemporary ballets that incorporate aspects of modern dance. Now, increasingly, and, and I hope we see more of this, we're starting to see dance from other parts of the dance world incorporated even into classical ballet. Um, so there's a, a ton of variety. That's Margaret Fuhrer, a dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. She's going to stick around as we talk more about how dancers have adapted over the last year and perspective on changes in professional dance uh, to come. More after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about dance. People have been using TikTok to stay connected, and that includes professional dancers too. But it's been a hard year for dancers and other performers. How have they stayed connected to their passion in a year marked by isolation, canceled performances, and concerns about paying the bills. We'll be talking about that with my guests uh, in just a moment. I wanted to hear from Deborah in West, Hart West Hartford. Deborah, you're on the show. Hi, Lucy. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I work for the Hart School Community Division as a ballet teacher, and I just wanted to take a brief moment to talk about the challenges for teachers as well and also the changes of mental health, the focus towards mental health in the dance world that's kind of started to happen um, for me. Personally, uh, I've had to really concentrate on how to make ballet combinations, which is what we do for every technique class. You have a specific set that you have to go through that can still help the students improve um, and challenge them technically without, A, having them injured because they don't have proper flooring or, you know, just they might hit something and also, you know, being more precise with my words and really having the students motivated through positivity 
um, instead of negativity and stress because I just started to see like the kids' faces, you know, to come in was very, very hard after being online all day with their regular public school. And I just opened up a little bit more as well. And the kids at the heart school, it's amazing. And I think, I don't know if you you said your child is also an inspiring ballet dancer. (laughs) So I, I hope that she is receiving that same kind of feedback and energy from her teachers. Um, and it's just really been actually amazing to, to see the development and, and the understanding of language in, in putting that into the, their bodies and their physical movement um, and also just being more open with me and more open with them, which is a little bit scary sometimes. Um, as a teacher, you kind of want that wall put up. And also, you know, on the whole, I've been noticing a lot of articles regarding, you know, the mental health of professional dancers and students, and I can't express how much that makes me feel better for the dance world. Well, Deborah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear the guests respond to what you have shared. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Margaret Fuhrer is with us, dance writer and editor of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. And joining us now on Zoom, Indira Goodwine, who's program director for dance at the New England Foundation for the Arts. Indira, thank you for joining today. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you could pick up on what you heard uh, Deborah share about um, the impact on both dance instructors and students, but this more of this conversation that's happening around mental health. What have you seen? Definitely. You know, we talk about health care uh, and other opportunities that is really hard for dancers, uh, for artists and dance makers as well. And so I think we really are starting to see more of an uplift around care and the ways in which we care for each other. And so mental health has certainly been uplifted in a new way, in a new profound way than it has before as people continue to be in this season of isolation. And so it's very critical. And I think we're starting to see that have an impact even on the next generation of artists and how they're being able to grapple with this time, still being able to use dance as an art form to be able to support that. But there are certainly other underlining things that this particular season has brought to us that that does require some more intentional focus around. Margaret, did you want to add? Um, yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I'm so grateful for what that that caller said about especially about mental health, because I think over the past couple of decades, there's been a real change in the way we think about the the physical health of dancers, seeing them seeing them as the elite athletes that they are. and a lot of companies have become better about, you know, having physical therapists on staff, giving their dancers access to the kind of high level physical support that they need. But dance demands so much mentally from its practitioners as well. And dance has been really slow to recognize that. And it's as challenging as this time has been, that is one of the silver linings is that finally people are starting to hear like, hey, dancers' mental health is just as important as their physical health. And and they need just as much support on that front as they do physically. Mm. Uh, Indira, tell me about your work with the New England Foundation for the Arts. When we think about the impact on dancers in this pandemic, you know, I talked about uh, people might be 
more connected on uh, social apps. But for professional dancers who are trying to make a living, this has been extremely challenging uh, over this last year. I'm wondering if you can talk about what you've observed and what you've been seeing. Definitely. It has certainly been challenging. And I think from a funding perspective, we have certainly seen in the beginning of the pandemic that there were many foundations, service organizations, and other kinds of philanthropic entities that began to provide emergency relief funds that would support what, what I've called the humanity of the artists. You know, sometimes artists are only recognized for what they can create and share, and people forget that they too have basic needs, have like a livelihood, if you will, that extends beyond their art. And so while this was certainly important early on in the pandemic, though, I did want us not to forget that this moment, if you will, would pass. And what were we going to do for the movement ahead that would require new thinking and equitable support for dance artists, which is inclusive of the, the mental and emotional trauma that's been happening uh, throughout the country for dance artists and dance uh, makers. Mm. These emergency funds have been a lifeline, but it also points to a system that's broken. This idea that, you know, as Margaret had mentioned earlier in the show, the way our um, art organizations, our performers, um, how they're funded, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to get support. And when those have had to close or, or find new careers, it's, it's not easy to, to come back to dance. I'm wondering if you can talk about ways to flip this funding model to help more performers, Indira. Certainly. I mean, I think some of this also speaks to what we hope will happen in the future. Uh, I think there are certainly a few things that have been uplifted even uh, in the earlier conver conversation around the lack of certain kinds of support for artists. But I also want to uplift that the models that we're working under currently also tend to lean more towards project-specific support. So for those artists who might not necessarily have something new that they want to create, there's a, there's a struggle to be able to be supported uh, in this current model that we have. And so I think what we're venturing into and what we're looking forward to is how this current shared learning that's happening in the virtual spaces can serve as a catalyst to revolutionize our practices and place more value and appreciation on the form of dance. And I mean, we were starting to have a conversation around equity uh, and unfortunately conversations around equity in the arts and culture landscape and specifically dance are not new you know systemic racism is real and while there have been some people interested in rebuilding or creating a new normal uh, i personally have not i mean we must consider the language we use as we establish new ways of being we should not take an interest in rebuilding things that were already broken or establishing a new normal because even that reestablishes complacency around hierarchy and conforming to a system that upholds particularly the exclusion of black people, indigenous people and other peoples of color. So we see racial inequity in multiple areas of the dance field, including but not limited to education, forming dance businesses and companies, performance and funding opportunities. So I think we're certainly definitely starting to unpack that and really pull out at the root what has been um, a lot of the inequitable uh, works, if you will, that have taken and, and mm -hmm. procedures and protocols that have taken place within our field. 
Indira, besides uh, talking about um, this work that's starting to begin, can you give us examples of places and whether it's in New England or um, elsewhere in our country where you're seeing uh, institutions and dance organizations starting to look more when we think about uh, racial injustice and, and ways to help uh, all performers uh, to break the mold, so to speak? Certainly. I, I, I will actually say I think this is happening really all over the country. I think the murder of George Floyd was certainly um, a spark for some people. Uh, and, and organizations have started to use this time to really deeply reflect on what it is that their values are. And I think that has been very important as we also think about accountability within our own field. So one of the things that I'm constantly uplifting is that while I am uh, at NIFA, you know, as a foundation, we are to be of service. And so the moment that we're not being of service, uh, we're not really doing the work that we've signed up to do. And so I think it's been an exceptional time to be able to see how not only dance artists are responding within the art that they're continuing to create and be able to share virtually or even in safe ways um, in, in public parks and in drive-ins, you know, we're really starting to think about the other ways in which dance can be experienced. And so I think that's also starting to break down some of these other inequities that exist that, that, are, that are social and racial. You're hearing Indira Goodwine here on Where We Live, Program Director for Dance at the New England Foundation for the Arts. Also with us on Zoom, Margaret Fuhrer, dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit Newsletter and Podcast. You can join our conversation too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Megan's calling in from Simsbury. Go ahead, Megan. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I just wanted to chime in about changing the narrative, um, not just with ballet, but with all professional dance careers about age. So um, I heard you talking with Brian, and I'm actually Instagram friends with him. And um, I heard you say, at what young age should you begin your dance career? But I think that we need to start to think about all ages starting dance careers. I'm 34. I had a, a dance career when I was younger, certainly, but now I'm married, have children, and still have a dance career at 34, and that's considered old <laughs> in the uh, narrative, the old narrative of age. So I think that that's something important to talk about, professionally speaking, but also in all aspects of dance, not just professionally. Like, you know, anybody can dance. <laughs> Yes, I love that, Megan. <laughs> you know, I, I I never took dance classes as a child, and you know, I'm so excited that my my daughter has gravitated to this. Uh, but I, I love that that thinking that maybe I could have thought about that in my 30s. <laughs> Thank you, Megan, for calling in. I'd love to hear our guests chime in about that, changing the narrative. Uh, Meg, uh, Margaret, I'll start with you. Oh yeah, I love that. I'm a thousand percent on board. I think there's been such a narrow view of what what a dancer is, what a dancer looks like um, that has been perpetuated by what we see in top companies and what we see in the media. And it's just, yeah, it's completely unnecessary. Everybody can dance, everybody can dance, any age, any shape, any race. More of that, more, more visibility for more people dancing, please. 
Indira, what's your um, response uh, to our caller and also to the idea of well, changing the narrative, but how do you get the, the dance companies, the people that are, um, you know, looking at dancers and thinking about should they join my company? Do they have the skills? Do they have the right body? That kind of conversation, you know, is that happening? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And one of the things that I also uplift a lot is that motion is life, right? This is a part of our daily practice, um, our our walking, our um, speaking, even our breathing is really all about the different kinds of motions we take. And I know there was a conversation earlier around TikTok. And while I am not an active participant, <laughs> and I am, I am simply an observer, I can appreciate the ways in which during this season of isolation, the platform has created another space for dance to be experienced and ideas of what dance is or can be have been elevated. It has built a sense of community via dance challenges and allowed some people to experience a similar form of escapism that occurs when engaging with dance through a live and even interactive kind of experience. And so I think, uh, it's true what the caller uplifted, and I'm I'm happy to see um, more folks being able to move and embrace moving, not only for themselves but also collectively. And what could what can that do in terms of this collective transformation we're seeking in terms of the practices that we have within our industry? You can join our conversation as we focus on dance here on Where We Live. My guest, Indira Goodwine, Program Director for Dance at the New England Foundation for the Arts, and Margaret Fuhr, dance editor, dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. We'll be back after a short break. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about dance with my guests, Indira Goodwine, Program Director for Dance at the New England Foundation for the Arts, and Margaret Fuhr, dance writer and editor in chief of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. Indira, I wanted to talk about uh, the dance world uh, post pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can talk about um, when we think about kind of picking up on what our caller had said earlier about changing the narrative, but also changing, becoming more inclusive in the sense of uh, accepting of all bodies, accepting of people who are gender fluid and, and how the, the dance world can move forward on that. Yeah, I mean, as far as us moving forward and, and moving out of this pandemic, we need to create new spaces that give all dance artists the opportunity to thrive on their own terms and have agency in doing so. Uh, I think we also have to move out of the scarcity model and really begin to foster a culture of abundance. And, and part of fostering that culture of abundance is inclusive of intersectionality. So I know some of the conversation earlier, uh, I know we were uplifting about inclusivity within our field. And I think we haven't been as inclusive because people are not willing to embrace uh, the intersectionality of all that someone can be. 
And for those who don't know, the, the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who describes how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. And I think this is the space that we need to be able to uplift more as we look at disability, as we look at um, different, different ways in which people move, and also talking about the various forms and aesthetics. You know, there was a lot of uplift on this call today around ballet, but that's certainly not the pedestal. Uh, or we shouldn't be holding it up on a pedestal that that is the end all be all of dance. And there are certainly other forms um, to be uplifted as well. And I think there has to be an embrace about that as we consider whose stories we're being able to uplift and appreciate uh, through the forms of dance. So I definitely think that is going to be critical as we move out of the pandemic. And uh, Kara, uh, I also oh. see that there is an opportunity to experience dance continuing in this hybrid space where we will have opportunities to be virtual as well as hopefully soon being back in person and being able to have live opportunities to engage with. I was uh, reading something about how in the dance field, oftentimes online content is uh, was often put aside for marketing purposes. But Indira, you're saying that this could be uh, another genre that people can focus on post-pandemic, digital dance making. Certainly. I mean, I, I will not, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that there are certainly dance artists and companies who have struggled during COVID with this because they actually don't have the technological resources or staff team capacity to be able to produce and share work in the virtual space. But there are certainly opportunities, I think, in the future and even venture to say, hopefully with some newfound funding support where we can have um, investment and a deeper investment in those artists to be able to share in this way. I wanted to take a quick call before we run out of time today. Carolina New Haven. Go ahead, Caroline. What did you want to share? Uh, hi. Yeah, but I was just listening to um, the woman who called before me talking about um, her experience at, at how we should expand the age of dance. And I am 31, um, and I went to law school at age 27 and became very close with a friend who had been a former professional ballerina. And just through, I did a lot of sports growing up. I never did dance didn't get near it at all um and through her we we you know fell in love with hip-hop together and we joined the um lawful dance team she was the choreographer for this like follies show that we put on um and i just found so much joy and expression and community um and a way to just you know move my body in a new way um and i was you know 28 29 <laughs> 30 like learning how to dance and move my body in such a new way. And I, I loved it. It brought me so much joy. So I, that really, really resonated with me, what she um, said earlier. And that, you know, it, it, and my ballerina friend who had previously been a professional ballerina was able to access this new type of dance. And she had, I mean, her body can do incredible things that I can never even dream of, like splits and other things. But um, it was such a, like, a, a movement towards, like, joy and community um, and just fun. It was just really, really fun. Well, Caroline, thank you for calling in uh, to the show. Uh, Margaret, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to, to go to you, Margaret Fuhr. Uh, what will you be watching for uh, as we hopefully are seeing the end in sight with uh, this pandemic, but in terms of how the dance world can reimagine itself? Go ahead, Margaret. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to, to echo what Indira was saying about 
digital technologies and how I hope that we do see funding towards investment in those technologies because I think we're going to end up seeing them better integrated into many aspects of dance, training, and performance. And there's a lot to be hopeful about there in terms of accessibility. Um, we've seen now the power of digital media, the power it has to reach huge audiences who normally wouldn't be able to see or study dance, the ways it allows access to more and different groups of people. And I think online dance classes before the pandemic, they weren't widely accepted as legitimate form of dance training. Now they are, and I don't think that's gonna go away, um, which again, I think that's encouraging from an accessibility standpoint, because it allows more people, more pathways to dance training, more ways to enjoy dance. Um, I also think bigger picture, the pandemic and the, the social justice movements that have gained momentum during the pandemic, they've really revealed to the people at the top of the dance food chain, the problems that have been apparent for a long time to people with less power, and especially to marginalized groups, to people of color, to queer and non-binary people, dance artists with less power have always seen sort of the brokenness of the dance world and now the people who thought the old system was working because they were blind to its inequities their eyes have been opened i mean really this past year has been a wake-up call for everyone on all sides of dance worlds companies media outlets administrators presenters if you want to survive you have to change mm -hmm. so the hope is that the change that has begun during the pandemic continues and accelerates post-pandemic as dance organizations are slowly able to get back to their regular daily work. Hopefully well, Margaret Fuhrer, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, she's dance writer and editor-in-chief of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. It was fun. Thank you, Margaret. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for putting a spotlight on dance. It so often thank seems you. to finish last. It deserves more and better. And Indira Goodwine, we appreciate your time as well. Program Director for Dance at the New England Foundation for the Arts. Uh, today's show, produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>